The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. It's a level of performance that we expect not only from ourselves, but from our staff. And for the most part, I think our clients would say that they're treated with respect, they're treated with professionalism, and when they walk in on the first day, they are treated the same way as when they walk out the last day. From the law offices of Schwartz and Plant in Worcester, Massachusetts, it's the Basics of Divorce podcast with attorneys Nicholas Plant and Russell Schwartz. So welcome back, everyone. This is David Yaz from the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com. I'm here again with Russell Schwartz and Nick Plant talking about the basics of divorce. In this particular episode, we're going to be talking about an interesting concept. So I'm looking at this, Russ and Nick, and the title of this episode is Divorce Doesn't End With Divorce, which is a little counterintuitive to me, the layperson. <laughs> but um, how do you want to kick this off, Russ? Tell, tell, us, tell us about this element of divorce. When, when most folks uh, go through the process, they think that on the day that the judge uh, approves their divorce agreement or enters a judgment of divorce, that the case is over. And they don't think about anything else that happens after a divorce is entered. But uh, in fact, there are many, many issues that arise post divorce. And I thought that uh, this would be kind of a good episode for uh, Nick and I to kind of chat about all these little things that pop up at the end of the case so folks can start thinking about them. And in case they have recently gone through the process, they can kind of follow a checklist to see if they've done everything they're supposed to do in order to uh, finish up the process. So once you, once you handle it and a case has resolved, you tend to see clients back in your office? Uh, For a variety of reasons, okay. but on a number of, of occasions, absolutely. Yeah, so tell us some of the reasons why. So, you know, you start with sort of the stuff that is incidental to the divorce. So there are things like what we call quadros, qualified domestic relations order. Those are the legal documents that are drafted to divide retirement accounts. So the a divorce resolves by way of a separation agreement. In Massachusetts, we call them separation agreements, even though they're divorce agreements. Mm-hmm. Or a judgment of divorce after a contested trial. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I'm a, I'm a successful survivor of divorce myself. What do you call <laughs> that? But right, the the um, the separation agreement and the divorce agreement are one and the same. Oh, one and the same. Yeah, and at okay. least every year, a client says to me, no, no, I, in the middle of a case, I don't, I don't want to be separated. I want to be divorced. And I yeah. say, no, no, I promise. There's <laughs> one thing I can guarantee you. You're going to get divorced. Right, right. Uh, but that separation agreement or that judgment of divorce will uh, be the framework for how, they're, how the parties are going to live post-divorce. And it's going to have a variety of things. It's going to call for retirement accounts to be divided. It's going to call for a house to be sold or refinanced. It's going to call for stock accounts to be transferred, for personal property to be divided. So oftentimes, after the divorce judgment enters, um, everybody takes a deep breath. And then the following week or month, um, a whole nother round of work starts as we start to uh, comply with and effectuate the divorce agreement. Russ, you nodded your head when you said deep breath. Real yeah, well, deep breath. it is. I mean, everybody is decompressing, and uh, then it's time to get on with business, the business of kind of effectuating all the stuff that we did in the, the judgment of divorce. And um, kind of first and foremost, we, Nick and I in, in our firm, we always encourage our clients to kind of start this process and work with their former spouse to get it done without our involvement. There are certain things that can easily be, easily be done without us being involved. As Nick said, the division of bank accounts, transferring automobiles, uh, stock accounts, those type of things. But there are things that cannot be done without uh, some guidance, either from a professional or from uh, a legal professional, uh, and we're talking about uh, qualified domestic relations orders, and that's probably kind of a good 
topic to chat about just quickly. Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. So um, effectively what happens is um, there are usually at least one, if not more, retirement accounts in uh, the marital estate. And oftentimes we have to divide those in a way that makes sense to everybody, and those, and that comes with some complications. And one of the complications is that uh, in order to divide retirement accounts uh, without tax consequences or penalties, they have to be divided by way of a qualified domestic relations order. This is the, uh, the, the quadro that Nick was talking about. Uh, sometimes they can be divided in other ways. But in order to do that, we have to hire uh, post-divorce, hire a professional who can draft documents necessary for their retirement people to kind of divide them. And once that's mm. done, then we get court approval and it gets divided. But it's it's a process. Mm-hmm. And that's just the mechanical uh, aspect of it, right? Because yeah, if you have a, an IRA or 401k, whatever it may be, it's growing tax-free. You can't just liquidate everything and give the money that it, it loses its ability to continue to be a retirement account. Is that right? Or? Absol- well, absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah there, there are complications with it. I mean, f- first you have the tax consequences and the penalties, but then you have this asset that is in a retirement account that is uh, is effectively growing as the litigation is progressing or maybe not growing, maybe yeah. diminishing in value, but whatever the case is. And, and what happens to that retirement account once the judgment enters and in between the time that the judgment enters and the time that it's actually divided, is mm. the account going up? Now is what? it going yeah. down? So it, it, it uh, elicits a number of issues that we help our clients with. And there are all sorts of strategies, I think, that Nick would tell you about. And sometimes there are even um, cases where we've not been the original divorce lawyer, where we didn't draft the divorce agreement, where we weren't part of it, but it wasn't drafted in a thoughtful or comprehensive way. Uh, and it might just have a sentence, we're going to divide our retirement accounts. It might not have a valuation date. It may not specify how we're going to value pre-tax and post-tax money or, or what type of retirement account, what accounts they're going to come from. So sometimes we develop new clients who have come to us for the um, purpose of having us help them fix a not thoroughly or well-drafted divorce agreement. So right. we do that as well. Right. Well, Russ, do you want it to, would it make sense to talk about what happens if things go awry? In other words, if, if one party isn't isn't behaving by the rules agreed to in the divorce agreement, yeah, separation agreement? The, um, what you're talking about is uh, the possibility of us filing what we call a complaint for contempt where a party is not following a lawful judgment of the court and where they have intentionally uh, violated the terms. And I think it's just important to say here, not to interrupt you, Russell, but whether it's a separation agreement or whether it's a decision by a court, the final agreement of the parties becomes a court order. Mm. It becomes part of what is called a judgment of divorce and is therefore a court order. And as a result, once that court order is in place, uh, we, the lawyers, the judges, take it very seriously. It's not a kind of sort of order. It is an order of the court. And when there's a violation or intentional violation of that order, uh, it gives rise to uh, one party filing a complaint for contempt saying you have the other party has violated the order intentionally and as a result should be sanctioned as a result or relief should be granted as a result of that violation. In most cases where clients come to you and say, hey, uh, my ex-husband hasn't paid me in two months or three months or whatever it may be, in most cases like that, you're thinking back into court or are there, are there steps you take before you get there? There are always steps that we try to take. Um, what we often tell our clients is that we ask nicely once. <laughs> okay. Right. And then uh, from there, we don't ask 
as nicely. So if that, in your case, I think Nick and I would tell you, if you were sitting before us, the first thing we would do is uh, have you reach out independently. So send an email saying, uh, it looks like you've missed one, two, three payments. Please make payment immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, That sometimes works, sometimes it doesn't. Then we will take the next step and we'll write a letter on our client's behalf. Mm -hmm. Uh, The court order says this, you've violated the court order, please uh, fix it immediately. And we give them a time frame to do it. This must come up all the time. I mean, for, for better or for worse. It comes right? up a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think um, there are some issues, I would say, uh, not to disagree with Russell, but we're talking a lot about financial issues. When it's, a, some, when it's something a little bit more serious, like uh, my ex-spouse is not letting me see our children right. on a court-ordered schedule, right. or I've been denied this holiday time, or I've been denied this parenting time, that's something where we might go in much, much quicker or much, much faster to, because of, primarily our clients are mostly concerned with their children. It's, it's their primary function, even as it relates to the economic issues in their marriage they're, they're con- or their divorce, they're concerned about the children. So if they're being denied parenting time, that's one of the things where we would probably more likely than not go right into court so that we could rectify that situation very early on. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I think when we're talking about finances and custody, there's two apples and oranges, I, I, I would agree. But kind of following up, for, for, we, we've, we've now instructed our client to uh, write the letter. We've written a letter, no mm-hmm. response. Uh, we file a complaint for contempt in court. We serve the party. We run into court within uh, two, three weeks, and we have the judge make a decision. And the judge has a, a variety of sanctions available. Uh, I'm sorry, a variety of remedies available to her uh, during during a contempt. It's ordering compliance. It is ordering uh, financial sanctions. It is um, as serious as incarceration, a probate court and family court judge does have the ability to incarcerate somebody, to jail somebody for purposes of getting them to comply with the judgment. Um, they call it purge. It's a funny legal word, but it essentially means buying a ticket to freedom. They lock you up in the morning and they say you can get out as soon as the check clears. Really? Okay. And yeah. some people, as they're being let out of the courtroom, will yell, where's the cashier? Some people stay a little bit longer, but <laughs> it is one of the mechanisms that the probate and family court judge uh, can impose so she can enforce um the judgments of the court. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, and sometimes it's as easy as having the court officer put the handcuffs on the defendant. Yeah. And <laughs> at, at that point in time, all of a sudden we, we find that the money is flowing. That's when people realize that it's serious and, oh yeah, here's my checkbook. Here's my credit card right here. And the judges do take it serious. They expect their court orders and they expect the agreements of people to be followed. Yeah. So can you, um, let me just ask, uh, switch gears a little bit here. And are there clients that you have seen after divorce as many as half a dozen, a dozen times afterwards. And if you can get maybe get a picture in your head is what would one of those clients say about the way your law firm kind of helped them through the divorce process, but then after the, the post process, what would that client say? In, in our world, people's lives are constantly evolving. Right. Um, it could be a divorce that has now kind of resolved itself and a party is remarried. Uh, remarriage has all sorts of uh, separate issues that go along with it, whether it's the new spouse, the effect on the children of the new spouse, incomes, uh, diminution, increases of in- in- income. Yeah, I take uh, it just, just from a practical human standpoint, if, if someone gets remarried, it could be a good thing for all, and then it could, it could raise a lot of the emotions of the past, and all of a sudden uh, things get messy again. There, the majority of our cases um, <clears throat> deal with property division and child support and alimony and custody and short of property division, custody, child support, 
even sometimes alimony, all modifiable issues. And the probate court, for the most part, uh, with a showing of a change in circumstance, whatever that change is, will then weigh in on a further decision on a complaint for modification. So to answer your question, I mean, we see, we we often see clients uh, back. I'm not sure about six or seven times, well, I was, but uh, I was just oh, thinking, well, that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> it's sort of an interesting story, but I, I've now been, um, I'm just coming up on 15 years of practice. And mm-hmm. I, I, there's a case that I just finished probably for the fourth or fifth time. I did the original divorce. I did a contempt over uninsured medical expenses. I did a modification when a job changed. I did a subsequent modification for uh, the college expenses and the payment of college. And the last time I represented the client when we were done, um, she sort of, uh, gave me a hug and said, I really think this is it. I think we're done now. <laughs> have to say goodbye, Nick. Uh, and we figured out that the, that her daughter was six when I started and was gra- will graduate from college this oh, May. And so I rode, you know, that, that family and I rode along together for uh, a number of years. I think it was probably four or five times. So the good news is she was happy with her representation and kept coming back. Um, the bad news was they weren't particularly able to facilitate decisions between the two of them post-divorce uh, and Apparently needed our so, intervention. Yeah. So, But it does happen. We live with families for a long time. Russell has actually a very beautiful uh, picture and a note from a, a dad hanging out uh, over his uh, over his uh, office door there. Um, same thing. He'd been with the family from the get-go. He'd been in practice a little bit longer than me. The family, the kids had aged out. The case was really over. There was going to be nothing. And the, the, the gentleman gave Russell a very nice picture of him and his sons and a, a really lovely thank you note for all of the representation that he had provided over the course of the years. And, and in that letter, um, the key phrase was, thanks for trying so hard. Yeah. And that's kind of what we hope clients will say about us. Uh, you know, nothing is perfect in this world. We never guarantee our, our, our results, but what we do guarantee is that we will try really hard. Uh, we will show our clients that we try really hard and that we're committed to their cause. Um, and if you ask clients for the most part, what, what is most important to them? It's that they believe their lawyer believes in them and believes that their lawyer will try really, really hard to resolve their case, either by way of an agreement or by way of a court hearing. And there are two real badges of honors in this business, at least I think badges of honors that Russell and I care about. The first is a client that returns to us. That's a real badge of honor for us. That means we've done a good job the first time out and they want to come back and and we really take that seriously. The second is a little bit more ego driven, but we love when an opponent refer somebody over. So if we represent the wife and we've done a really good job, we I can think of a couple of cases where the husband who hasn't had a great result, uh, who is represented by somebody else, has later on referred somebody to wow. us. And we kind of really, we really enjoy that because those wow. two things are, I think, real testaments to lawyers that have done a really good Integ- job. Integrity, right? He, he, of course, he didn't, strength. he didn't necessarily like what you were doing because right. you were representing the, the other party in his case, but apparently really respected it. Does that happen a lot, Russ? You know, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, the, the truth is that... The, the enough mon- that we know about yeah, it. It happens the, enough that we pay attention that's to That's for it. sure. Um, our philosophy has always been just be honest, try hard. Um, be prepared. And be prepared and move forward and not dilly-dally because uh, the truth is in our world that we are hourly wage earners and the more we dilly-dally, the more it's costing our clients. And our goal is to start at start and finish at finish with a direct line, straight in. Uh, and if we can do that, even if it's slowly and and forcefully or directly, we do that. Um, we try not to uh, to waste time or to uh, make promises we can't keep. And we, we actually had just a, a retired probate and family court judge in our office maybe two weeks ago doing a mediation using our space. And um, 
she was talking about some memories and recollections of when she was on the bench. I argued my very first case as a lawyer in front of her and I lost and I've never really let it go. So every time <laughs> I see her, a reminder of it, but, um, and she talked about how she always knew the lawyers that were prepared, uh, that were ready to go and that were, um, that had, that knew the facts of their case, that knew the law as it related to the facts and knew the justification for the result and how those lawyers always, always achieved far superior results from the lawyers that went in there unprepared, unknowledgeable of the facts of the case, of the family's needs, and of the law as it related and, to that And family. if you talk to experienced uh, trial lawyers or family law lawyers and judges, they will all tell you that the majority of their cases, uh, the, the attorney's cases that are won, are not won necessarily in the courtroom, mm-hmm. but are won in the office by the preparation that goes into um, whether it's the financial operations or the, pr- the process that goes through it or the drafting of the documents in a way that's thoughtful and prepared well before we step in front of a judge. And that's the key for us. Do your clients ever say to you, wow, you remember things hap- that happened in my life better than I did? All Do the they- time. Really? It, ha- it happens time. to us all the time, <laughs> all the time, especially the ones that have kind of come back, uh, you know, five, six, seven years later when it- we can remember that their child uh, was particularly involved in uh, some event or some uh, activity Sport that was unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, it's not uncommon for my wife to remember them. She'll remember during a particularly <laughs> difficult case when I'm working on the weekends or working at night or talking to a client. And years later, uh, you know, she'll remember if a child had an unusual name or something like that. She'll remember that child's name and she'll say, whatever happened to so-and-so? Do you ever hear from that's, so-and-so? And, you funny. know, they become part of our lives. We become part of their lives. It's, um, it can be an intense process. Uh, they rely on us, we rely on them, but it can be um, a, a really, really um, beneficial partnership with a, an engaged client and a prepared and an engaged lawyer. And we've talked a little bit about contempt, but we haven't talked about what, what are essentially complaint for modifications, which and if you relate it back to that family, that mom that I just finished up with after all those court appearances, uh, complaints for modification are very, very common in domestic relations work and frequently come are the reason why people come back to us. And that can be modifications in the issue of custody. Uh, that can be modifications in the issue of support, alimony, issues relating to health insurance, uninsured medical expenses. Um, for the most part, I think those are the, the, the key ones. And that could probably be a whole a topic for another podcast, I think. But and sure. they can be factual changes within a family, a change of where a child lives, a change in jobs resulting in a change in support, but they can also be substantial changes in the law. In 2011, Massachusetts entirely reformed its alimony law, created a whole new class of litigation or uh, or need for modification because of the way we now do alimony. The child support guidelines, uh, which govern how we pay child support in Massachusetts, change every three to four years. The, uh, the recent uh, change in the tax code, making Absolutely. alimony now non, uh, moving forward, uh, new alimony orders are no longer tax deductible for federal, um, from what I understand, for federal True. tax purposes. Maybe not Massachusetts. Massachusetts, I still believe, uh, allows for uh, alimony as a tax deduction. That changes a lot of ways people think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it keeps keeps our phone ringing. Absolutely. Yeah, and... It's it's just mind boggling to think of all the details you guys need to keep in track, and and you just mentioned all the all the legal nuances and how they're constantly changing. 
But I can imagine that you once you're prepared for that case, you know at what point you know the the couple separated. You know at what point the child turned eighteen or whatever it is. And I get a stomachache trying to think of keeping all those details and tax forms and all financials and budgets and all those things in my life. So it's a testament to you guys. But you know we're lucky up. because we have a really comprehensive staff here. We have uh, an office manager. We have administrative assistants. We have associate attorneys. We've built the layer of uh, or we've built a, a series of layers that we need so that our from our receptionist up to one of us as the partners uh, know these clients know these cases know what they need they know how to bring it to our attention and even our uh, our our staff here in the office know how to service some of the clients to get them a document that they need to get a question in front of us so that they can relay an answer if we're having a particularly busy day and don't have time so we've put in place that infrastructure to deliver for the client in fact it's a level of performance that we expect not only from ourselves but from our staff mm -hmm. and for the most part i think our, cl our clients would say that uh, they're treated with respect they're treated with professionalism um, and uh, I think uh, when they walk in on the first day, they are treated the same way as when they walk out the last day. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be here at the law firm of Schwartz and Plant. And may I say, I've been treated just wonderfully since I've been here. So I think, oh, that's accurate. Uh, Russell, Nick, thanks again. Terrific episode of The Basics of Divorce. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend or a colleague. As a reminder, you can get more information about the law firm, Russell and Nick, at schwartzplant.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-P-L-A-N-T-E. Dot com. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, this is a three-part series of these podcasts, so listen to every installment. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks so much for listening. This has been a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.